You are now listening to the November 11th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, this is Nicole with Let's Read the Bible. The book of Proverbs contains many wise statements that reveal to us how to live a godly life. There are several special themes in today's Let's Read the Bible reading, Proverbs chapter 6. There are proverbs about laziness, about sexual immorality, and about doing evil. There are also, surprisingly, proverbs about co-signing loans or putting up collateral for a friend or neighbor. These are surely not ordinary themes. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 tell us this. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. Often, some people misunderstand these verses from Proverbs and believe that they should never give a pledge or put up security for others. But that's not what Proverbs 6 is teaching us. Proverbs chapter 6 is telling us that financial obligations are very serious and we should avoid getting into surety agreements and be very cautious about co-signing a loan. As a matter of fact, in ancient society, there were many instances of people being sold as slaves to other people's houses overnight because of their incorrect or hasty pledge giving. And the same thing was happening quite often among the people of Israel due to the influence of foreigners. The author of Proverbs chapter 6 is advising us to be prudent when we put up securities or give pledges because we can be in deep trouble if we make decisions in haste or having been swept up in the moment. But the author also tells us the solution as well if we realize that decisions were made hastily or by being swept up in the moment. The wisdom for this situation can be found in verses 3 to 5. Then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. The author tells us that if we put up a pledge in haste, go to the neighbor who had been pledged and apologize humbly, acknowledge the hastiness in making the decision, and plead urgently to be free from the duty of the pledge. The author also tells us to do everything we can until we can be free from the responsibilities even if we cannot get any sleep. It is because such pledging is very dangerous that can cause us to lose everything we own. 
In our lives, there may be times when we need to give our pledges to those we love. If it becomes necessary to help someone we love by guaranteeing their loan, then we must make sure that we have the ability to make the payments if something should go wrong. But if that is not the case, hasty decisions can bring us dangerous situations later. And the author is warning us about that. God sent us the Holy Spirit for our salvation and has given us a pledge. The fact that God gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge means that God is ready to lose the Holy Spirit if something goes wrong. We all can give pledges for someone if needed, but please remember that it is possible only when we are ready to accept risks that come with them. Then we will not regret or complain even if things don't go the way they should have. Please do not give pledges hastily or out of being swept up in the moment. Let's read Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 35 together. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hands of your neighbor. Go, hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you, and when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, 
from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty with your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his grace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Let's read the Bible. We just read Proverbs chapter six, verses one to thirty-five. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? You are my everything. I will sing your praise. You shed your blood for me. What can I say? You took my sin and shame. A sinner called. Mercy and grace are mine. Forgiven is my sin. Jesus, my only hope, the Savior of the world. Great is the Lord. We cry. Let Your kingdom come. Let me sing. Thank you for saving me. Yeah.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Gospel and Light. Today's topic is worship. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. This is Psalm chapter 95, verses 1 through 11. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. This is God's word. Uh, I've been away. I've been sick. I had, uh, in the middle of June, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. I think most of you know that. So in the middle of June, they took my thyroid out. See, there it is. I was hoping it was about, wait, weighed 50 or 60 pounds. <laughs> it would have been a wonderful way to, but I think it was like five or six ounces or something like that. Um, I, I'm not back to full strength at all. However, I wanted to come because I ran out of thank you notes. Uh, there's been so many prayers. There's been so much support. There have been so many innumerable little kind of gifts. We finally got to the place where I felt I had to come at least today and just at every service thank people for all the support. Uh, a lot of people have faced harder things than this. One of the things I wrestled with is the question, of how, how do you face troubles like this with peace, with rest, with uh, equilibrium? And I came to realize that weekend that it's not mainly through petitionary prayer. See, of course, the Bible's filled with petition, where you go to God and you make your needs known and you cry out and you ask for success and you ask for healing and you ask for all that. You should do that. You will do that. And we did do that. And that's in the Scripture, of course. But the ultimate and main way to handle the troubles of life with peace is not just through petitionary prayer, but through worship, through worship. This particular psalm is the classic text in the Bible about worship. It's the venite, because in Latin the first word is venite, O come. And through the centuries of the Christian church has looked to this maybe more than any other single place in the Bible to inform our worship. This text tells us almost everything we need to know. It tells us what worship is, why should we worship, and how can we worship. First, what is it? The answer of the Bible and the answer to this text, worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something 
in a way that energizes and engages your whole person, your whole being. And let me break that down for you. First, worship, according to this text, is something that engages every aspect of your being, mind, will, and emotions. It's very easy to outline the text and notice th there's three calls, verse 1, verse 6, verse 8. Verse 1, we're called to worship him with the emotions. It's emotional language. Sing, shout aloud, thanksgiving, extol, music. Secondly, in verse 6, we're called to worship him with our will, not just our emotions, with our will, because the language is that of submission, of volition. Come, kneel, bow down. And then lastly, in verse 8, it's the language of reason. It's the language of thinking. Hear his voice. Listen to his voice. Accept what he says. It's the language of thinking and of understanding. In other words, worship is something that engages you, mind, will, and emotions, your entire being. And this is extremely important to understand because if you go to some kind of ritual and you go through the ritual and you mouth the, uh, affirm the doctrines and beliefs, and if you do that without ever experiencing in your inner being a ravishing sense of beauty and joy, it's not worship. Or let me just flip that over. You could go to a service and experience great emotion. You could weep. You could have an aesthetic experience. You could have an emotional experience. But if it doesn't change the fundamental way in which you live, if it doesn't change uh, your character, if it doesn't change the life patterns, it's not really worship. Because bowing and kneeling without joy, or on the other hand, shouting and singing without bowing and kneeling in the life, without change in the life, it's not real worship. You may be having a cultural experience, you may be having an emotional experience, you may be having an aesthetic experience, but it's not worship. Worship entails the entire being. But what is it that engages the entire being? It's an act of assigning ultimate value. Now, what do I mean by that? If you take a look at the psalm, you'll see that all of the, the emotion and all of, all of the great engagement is stemming from something the psalmist is doing. In verse 1 and 2, it says, sing and shout and come before him with singing. And then look at verse 3. Look at the first word. For, because he's great, he's king, in his hands are the depths of the earth, the sea is his, his hands for the dry land. Now, look down at verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel. Verse 7. For, he is our God. He's not just a great God. He's our God, and he's a shepherd and he enters into a relationship with us, and he's made us his people. All of the emotion, all of the worship, all of the, the life transformation is coming from something the psalmist is doing. He's taking an inventory of the excellencies of God. He's going over them. He's going through them. He's enumerating them. He's reflecting upon them until there's an explosion in his life. The best illustration of this I can give you is this one. Imagine a woman and she's inherited a piece of jewelry, a brooch, let's say, from her mother, and she got it from her mother. And it's been around the family for years, but nobody quite knows where it came from, and nobody quite knows, you know, what it's worth, and half the time they don't even know where it is. And one day the woman sort of finds it and says, oh yeah, that old thing. I think I'll go get it appraised. So she takes it to a jeweler, and he gets his little jeweler thingy, the little eye thingy that they, he puts in his eye, and he begins to look at it. He starts to look at things like he notices the way the facets refract the light. 
He notices colors. He notices texture. And bit by bit, as he's looking at it and he's thinking about it, all of a sudden, after several minutes of this, his little eye thingy pops out. And he starts to have labored breathing, and he begins to feel faint because he realizes this is some lost, ancient, unique piece of jewelry. The craft with which it was made has vanished from the face of the earth. Nobody even knows how to do it anymore. This is unique in its beauty. It's priceless. And the reason that he's suddenly experiencing, how do you say, all his mind, his will, and his emotion is all engaged, the reason why that is happening is because he realizes the value of what he has in his hand. He realizes in his hand is something more valuable than all the jewels in his shop, all the jewels he's ever had in his shop for 30 years. And of course, when the woman comes to understand the true value of what this thing is, she also is astounded. She's thunderstruck, and she realizes she has not been living in accordance with the value of what she had. Because she didn't understand the true value of it, she wasn't living it all the way she ought to be living. I mean, her entire life has changed now that she sees the value of it. That illustration tells you what worship is. The psalmist is calling us to do exactly what the jeweler does. It starts rationally. It starts with thinking. It starts with looking at what he, who he is, what he has done. It enumerates, it inventories, it goes through until it dawns on you the value, the beauty of who God is. The reason you can't come up with a better illustration than that is the very English word worship comes from the old English worthship. Worship is to see what God is worth and to give him what is worth, to see and grasp his worth in such a way that you begin to live in accordance with it. Most of the people in this country, we know from the polls, believe in God. In a sense, they have God. They say, I pray to God sometimes. I believe there's a God. I believe there's a creator. And most people believe in God. But they have God the way that woman had the brooch, completely unaffected, completely unaware of the value of it. The difference between a limp-along life, a common kind of just limp-along, just-get-along life, and a transformed life a life just shot through with thanksgiving and joy is not the difference between believing, not believing in God and just believing in God. It's the difference between not believing or believing and worship. It's worship that does it. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to God, seeing what he's worth and living in accordance with it in such a way that it transforms your whole life. That's worship. Nothing less. It's not just a little inspiration. It's not just a little pick-me-up. It's not just something that makes me feel like I'm part of a community, which we'll get to in a minute. It's existential essence. It's ascribing ultimate value to God in such a way that it galvanizes, electrifies, and changes your whole life. That's what worship is. Secondly, the text also tells us why we should worship. Why should we worship God? Why should we work at this? The answer to the text, why worship God, is because you're already worshiping something. You're already ascribing ultimate value to something. Your whole life is already controlled and oriented towards something to which you've ascribed ultimate value. Put it this way. The world is not simply divided into people who worship and people who don't. The world is divided into people who worship things that will distort your life, people who worship the wrong things, and people who worship the only proper object worthy of the worship of your soul. 
Those are the only two prospects. You're either worshiping the wrong things or you're worshiping the only one whose worship will not distort your life. You see, look at verse 3. Here's the answer. Why should we worship? For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. Now, do we say, oh, that's just an antiquarian, you know, that's just a leftover from the primitive times in which people believed in many gods. They were animists. They believed there was a mountain god, and there was a sea god, and there was a land god. And, and of course, what the psalmist is doing in verse 3, 4, and 5 is he's saying, no, the Lord God is the great God above all the gods, over the mountain. The mountains are his. The sea is his. The land is his. And, of course, it's a mere antiquarian an- uh, interest to us because we're, we're not primitives. We're not animists. We don't believe in many gods, and that's all there is to it. Wrong. Verse 3 tells us the very essence of worship is to recognize. You will not be able to worship unless you recognize. Your heart has already ascribed ultimate value to something. And the process of true worship of God is to recognize where your worship already is and transfer your ultimate value to God. In other words, true worship is not whomping up something that you don't have already. It's transferring the ultimate value ascription that your heart has already made from the things where it already is to God. And that's what changes your life. One of my favorite quotes from Becky Pippard in one of her books, she says this, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance by other people is controlled by what the the people that he or she seeks to please. But one thing is certain. We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our life. You see what she's saying? Of course, you're going to live for something. You have to live for something. Whatever that thing is, you are so dependent on it. You so desperately want it. You're so afraid of losing it. You're so freaked out when anything goes wrong with it. Be honest. Your relationship to it is that of worship. You have ascribed ultimate value to something, and your whole life, your entire being is oriented around it. Now you begin to realize why the worship of God is absolutely transforming, and you haven't worshiped God unless it is changing your life. Why? Do you know what will really heal you? You know what all your problems come from? Why are some people freaked out when they break up? Other people aren't. They're freaked out when something goes wrong with their money. What are they going to do? How are they going to become stronger, happier people? Well, they can try self-help. There's all kinds of things. The Bible says your ultimate problem is always what you worship. Only when you see God's love is more satisfying and more valuable and more beautiful than any other kind of love will you never be freaked out again over relationships. Only when you see God's honor and a relationship with him is more beautiful, more powerful than any other form of honor or pleasure, will you not be freaked out over getting criticized or or failing? And if you keep getting freaked out, and if you keep finding yourself just rolled around emotionally, and if you are constantly, just constantly struggling with anxiety or despondency or nervousness or fear of what people think, nothing less than reassigning the ultimate value of your life from where they are, where it is, to God will heal you and change you and make you infallibly happy. Do you see it? If you don't understand that this is what worship is, worship is not just sort of coming and doing a duty. Worship is recognizing you already have ascribed something. You've assigned something, ultimate value in your life, and worship is a process of every time you reflect on him through singing, every time you reflect and praise him, every time you 
every act of worship is healing yourself, moving yourself, pulling your heart off of those things which control you onto the one thing that will not distort your life. And you see, a Christian, and if you could have one perfect act of worship in which you perfectly valued him, in which you perfectly enjoyed him, if you completely enjoyed him as he is, you'd be perfect. Nothing would get you down. Nothing would destroy you. Nothing, you could face anything. But of course, all of our acts of worship are imperfect, and therefore, bit by bit by bit, as we worship, and as we get better and better at worship, we change where our heart looks. We reassign the ultimate value to the one that will satisfy us if we get him and forgive us if we fail him. If you're living for achievement and you fail that God, it'll never forgive you. You'll hate yourself forever. If the thing you're really looking for is love and romance or family and somehow you fail that God, it'll never, never forgive you. You'll hate yourself forever. This is the only God who's a shepherd. This is the only God. We're the people of his pasture. We're the flock of his hand. He's the one God who forgives you. He's the only God who died for you. So why do we need to worship God? Because we're going to worship something and anything else but the real God will distort our life. Now, having said that and realizing now the importance of worship is not just something you're supposed to do as a kind of duty, it's, it's the ultimate need of your heart. It's the ultimate need of your life. If that's true, but we never do it perfectly, we have to get better and better at it, then now suddenly the last point becomes very important because the last point is how can we do it well? How can we get more skillful at it? And there's four things the text tells us. There's a lot of things the text tells us, but there's only four things I'm going to tell you. There are four things that you need to have in order to worship well. Number one, community. You know, this is, it's so obvious that you miss it. It's one of the most important things about the psalm. It's all in the plural. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He is our God. We are the people. We are being called to worship in a community. We're being called to worship in a group. Now, of course, you're supposed to be good at individual worship. Your own personal individual ability to praise him and pray and so on is very important. But I would have to say that as far as I can understand, I can't make the case for this, I'll just tell you my sense of the Scripture over the years is that individual worship is a preparation for corporate worship, which is the real transforming experience. C.S. Lewis, some years ago, put it in a way that is unsurpassed, at least in my reading. He was part of a little teeny trio of incredibly intimate close friends. Jack, C.S. Lewis, his name was Jack, or called Jack, Jack, Ronald, and Charles. And they were extremely close, and then suddenly Charles died. And when Charles died, Jack said, well, this is terrible. But I guess now my friendship with Ronald will be such that I'll get more of Ronald than I had before. I won't have to share him with Charles. But to his surprise, he discovered that there were certain things that in Ronald that only Charles brought out. There were certain parts of his heart and personality that only Charles drew out. And so C.S. Lewis realized, ironically, paradoxically to him, surprisingly, that when Charles died, he did not get more of Ronald, he had less of Ronald. Because no one individual can draw out the entire personality. You can only know somebody completely well in a community. But if that's true of a finite human being, how much more true would that be of God? 
And that means that unless you are in a worshiping community, I know this goes against our modern, Western, individualistic, consumer understanding of spirituality. This is telling you you will never know God as he is unless you are in a worshiping community, preferably a small one, that, a group of people you pray with regularly and a larger one that you worship with corporately. But this is the only way you're ever going to know him as he really is, the only way you're ever really going to get an accurate vision. The one-on-one -on -one thing with God alone doesn't work. It will not really show you all of the facets, you know. It won't show you all of the excellencies. It won't give you the, the great inventory. And, let's put it this way, the more diverse that worshiping community, the better. Doesn't it make sense? The more you have young and old, male and female, all the races, all the classes, the more diverse your worshiping community, the more you're going to get an accurate picture of God, the more you're going to understand Him. And not only that, a worshiping community will not just heal you psychologically and individually, but it'll begin to heal the breaches that divide the human race. It'll begin to bridge the gap between cultures. It'll begin to bridge the gap between races and classes and so on. So first of all, you need community, you much more than you think you do. Secondly, if you want to get better at worship, you need truth. How does the prophet know that he is the great God and the great king above all gods? How does he know in his hands are the depths of the earth? How does he know the sea is his? How does he know he's a shepherd? How does he know he is our God? He has given himself to us, and we are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. How does he know all these things? Does the psalmist say, well, I like to think of God as a shepherd. I just like to think of him like, no. The psalmist has submitted to what the prophets have said about God. The psalmist is submitting to the Scripture as the self-revelation of God. And by submitting to it, he's then able to take it and say, now let's look at this, let's use it, let's inventory, let's look at the excellencies, and it's by booting off the truth that he has the life-transforming worship experience. Now this is not something that people in New York like to hear. The average New Yorker says this, I would love to have experience of the spiritual, and I would love to be part of a community. But the third thing they say is, I want to kind of design my own religion and God. I don't like this part of the Bible, I don't like this part of the Bible, but I like this part. I like this part of Buddhism, I like this part of Shinto, I like this part of this. I like to put together an understanding of God that suits me. It's a free country, go ahead, but let me just suggest you'll have two results. Number one, this is not a living God. If you design a God that fits you and you throw out of the Christian tradition out of this Christian scripture anything you don't like, you have a God who can never fight with you, can never disagree with you, can never outrage you. You've got a God that's a cardboard cutout. You will not have a living worship relationship with him. You can't. So the first thing is you completely, if you are not willing to submit to the truth of the Scripture, if you're not willing to submit to a body of truth as self-revelation, you've completely cut yourself off from any real ability of having spiritual experience. Secondly, you've completely made it impossible for yourself to be part of a community. Do you realize if you've created your own personal understanding of God that's unique to you, you've isolated yourself, completely isolated yourself. Because I submit, even to the parts I don't like and don't understand, because I say, I listen to what the prophets and the apostles and the scriptures say about God. I submit to it. The ironic thing is, if you say, I want to have spiritual experience, but I do not want to submit to a body of truth, that seems so oppressive to me. Okay, design your own God. It will not be a God you can have a worship experience with. You will not be part of a community. You'll be spiritually absolutely isolated. 
You need the truth if you're going to have the transforming experience of worship. So first, you need community. Secondly, you need the truth. Thirdly, you need the spirit. Now, the word spirit doesn't show up in here anywhere. However, it does tell us this. The purpose of worship is to come into his presence, to come before him. Look, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Look at verse 6. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord. Now, this is confusing to some people because they say, why are we talking about coming into God's presence? Isn't God everywhere? Doesn't Psalm 139 say, wherever I go, there he is. Isn't God everywhere? Yes. But why does the Bible also say, why does David say in Psalm 51, cast me not away from thy presence? Why does Isaiah say in in Isaiah 64, why does he say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down? Oh, that the mountains would melt at your presence. The answer is that in spite of the fact that God is everywhere, by the mediation of the Holy Spirit, if you use the truth, if you do this in community, if you understand the purpose and nature of worship, sometimes the Holy Spirit will make you aware of the very presence of God. You will sense his reality. He will be present, palpable. You can almost feel him present in his power or present in his grace or present in his love or present in his majesty or present in all of those things. Now, the Spirit, you know, in John 3, it says the Spirit is like the wind. And in many ways, a Christian who's skillful at worship is like a sailor. Sailors cannot generate the wind. Sailors cannot create the wind. But sailors are skilled and all set up so that when the wind does show up, great things happen. Sailors are ready for the wind. Sailors are looking for the wind. And sailors know exactly what to do when the wind happens. And that's what it means to be a skillful worshiper. If you come in to a time of worship only hoping for a little inspiration and lift up and not saying, Lord, I want to know your presence. I want to experience your presence. If you are skillful at what the psalmist is doing here, if you know how to put on the jeweler's little thingy, if you know how to look at the truth, if you know how to do this, in community, if, you, if you know how to worship, you're expecting this, you're seeking this, and you're like a sailor. You can't generate it, but when it comes, you'll know what to do. You're seeking it, you're expecting it, and that's also uh, a skill that you have to have. So you need community, number one. Number two, you need truth. Number three, you need the Spirit. And number four, you need gospel Sabbath rest. Look at the very last part of the passage. It's very confusing. The first part of the psalm seems very good and upbeat and seems very obvious, and all of a sudden it gets really severe. It's a real downer. To, why, why would you end a psalm on worship with such a downbeat thing? Suddenly God says, you remember what happened in the desert? You know what happened in the wilderness? When the children of Israel were on their way to the promised land, they were on their way to the rest of the promised land. They were in tents and they were in the desert and they were restless and they were homeless. And they were looking for that rest of living in a land of milk and honey. But there was the first generation that came out of Egypt. They were so stubborn and they were so unwilling to listen to me that they died in the wilderness They wandered and wandered and wandered and died in the wilderness, and it wasn't until the second generation that got in to experience my Sabbath rest. Now, why would this psalm end with this? Why would it do that? The book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes a big deal about the fact that this is how Psalm 95 ends. The book of Hebrews asks a question. It says, now, if it's really true that Joshua finally got the children of Israel into the promised land and they experienced the rest... Why was it that centuries later, Psalm 95 warns worshipers not 
to miss out on the rest of God. And so Hebrews chapter 4 puts it like this. It says, Now God says, They shall never enter my rest. And he set a certain day, calling it today, though a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, this is the Hebrews writer. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later through David about rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We who have believed enter that rest. For anyone who enters God's rest rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let me put this in a nutshell. The Hebrews writer is being, is, is make, being very logical. Why would David in Psalm 95 warn worshipers not to miss the Sabbath rest of God when Joshua got the people into the promised land? Well, the Hebrews writer concludes, what this means is the physical rest that the children of Israel experienced must be pointing to a deeper rest that is still available for us and that we can miss. There must be a deeper spiritual rest. What would it be? Well, just as God on the seventh day rested from his physical work, so in the gospel we spiritually rest from our good works. And what the Hebrews writer is saying is this. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived the perfect life in our place as our substitute. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. Religion says, if I live a good life, God will bless me. I give God a perfect life record, then God blesses me. But the gospel, Christianity, says exactly the opposite, that God gives us in Jesus Christ a perfect record which we receive by faith. It's exactly the opposite. But the ultimate rest would be to believe the gospel. Because if you believe the gospel, you rest from your work spiritually. What that means is you don't have to live up anymore. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know that everything is going well in your life for God to bless you. Do you realize that whether you're religious or irreligious, you're working, you're working, you're working. If you're a moral religious person, you're trying real hard to be good so God will bless you. If you're an irreligious person, you're trying extremely hard anyway because you've got an ultimate value, remember? You're trying real hard to be savvy or to be cool or to be successful or to be pretty or to be handsome or to be something. And underneath it all is this deep current of insecurity saying, if I'm really good enough, if I work hard enough, then I'll know I'm somebody. The gospel ends all that tiring work. And the gospel gives you deep and final rest. He already loves you. He already accepts you in Christ. Why would it be at the end of a psalm on worship? Because if you don't understand gospel rest, you're going to turn worship into one more work. It's going to be a very, it's going to be one more thing on your rat race. You're just going to say, if I come to worship and I do it right and I pray well and I never miss church, then maybe God will bless me. And instead of transforming your life, it'll just be one more load weighing you down. And you won't be really serving God. You'll be serving the God of morality. And you'll be looking to yourself, not to him. And you won't have a life shot through with joy and thanksgiving. Do you have that clear insight? Do you understand that? If you don't have that insight, you need community, you need truth, you need the spirit, and you need gospel rest, that crucial insight, or worship will never change your life. Conclusion. Remember I told you in the beginning that right before the surgery, I was struggling with the question, how do you really face these toughest issues with peace and rest? Well, the answer came to me when I was studying Psalm 57. Psalm 57 is a very strange psalm. The reason it's very strange is the psalmist talks about how bad things are in the life. There's enemies here and things are falling apart, but instead of asking God to change it, 
Instead of saying, oh, Lord, give me success, give me healing, you know, let the surgery go well, right smack in the middle of all of his inventory of what's wrong with his life, three times he says the same thing. Three times he suddenly says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and may thy glory be over all the earth. Then he goes back to talking about how bad things, and all of a sudden, the second time he says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let thy glory be over all the earth. And he goes back. He never asks for anything. He never says, oh, help me here, help me there. All he said is, I see how great you are. I see how majestic you are. Now, there's plenty of places in the Bible that show us that when we're in trouble, we should ask for things, ask for help. But what struck me about Psalm 57 was this man was calming himself, not through petition, but through worship. What he was saying was, if I belong to the, the great king above all gods, who is such a god of light and high beauty, and I'm his, and he, he's mine, and nothing can separate me from him, I don't know what's going to happen in surgery. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. In the end, it doesn't matter. Because someday, all of this evil, all the evil in the world will just be a little blip on our memory. We'll hardly remember it. Worship really gives you rest. Worship really does it. Do you have that rest? Do you know how to worship? Thank you. Thank you for the blood that you shed. Standing in its blessing, we sing these freedom songs. Thank you. Thank you for the battle you won. Standing in your victory, we sing salvation songs. We sing salvation songs. Yours now forever as we sing these freedom songs. Thank you, thank you for the blood that you shed. Standing in His blessing, we sing these freedom songs. Thank you, thank you for the battle you won. Standing in your victory, we sing salvation songs. We sing salvation songs. Yeah. You have opened a way to the Father where before we could never have come. Jesus counts us as yours now forever as we sing these freedom songs. Thank you. Thank you. For 
for the blood that you shed Standing in its blessing we sing these freedom songs And thank you, thank you for the battle you won Standing in your victory we sing salvation songs We sing salvation songs the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series.
the king of Babylon was not thrown from earth to heaven, or vice versa. This is speaking of Satan. And notice what he says. But you said in your heart, and we're going to see five I wills. Remember, he was corrupted because of his beauty and wisdom. Remember that? But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He wanted to be above all the other angels. Okay? I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. He wanted to sit on the throne of God, I believe. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Uh Uh-oh. Here, Satan's in his corrupted splendor, declares his heart. Notice he says, you said this in your heart. This is what he was saying on the inside. Which God sees the heart, not man. God sees the heart. And here, in the heart of Satan, in a sense, he sees the inside. It's the heart of pride. It's the sin of Satan. It's also the sin of mankind. That mankind believes he is the Lord of his own life, that he's not accountable to God for anything. Have you come here today with the sin of Satan? If you haven't repented and trusted in Christ, you have. You have, because you have some pride keeping you from humbling yourself to realizing what God says about you and how sinful you are and your need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For as with Satan, God will eternally punish those whose sins are not forgiven. But the good news is that God sent his son Jesus in your place, and he died for your sins. And he destroyed the work of Satan by taking care of sin. So then Satan's heart was filled up because of his beauty and his wisdom, and he was corrupted from his splendor, and he sinned. He thought he could be like God instead of reflecting God's glory. He sinned. So what are the consequences of his sins? Back in Ezekiel 28, verse 16, By the abundance of your trade you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. I have cast you as profane. The word profane means polluted. God took out the polluted trash from heaven and threw it out. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Middle of verse 16. And I have destroyed you. Okay, He's destroyed in the context of his former privileges. And he will be completely destroyed later. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. The term destroy here doesn't mean to be annihilated. It means to be destroyed or perish in a sense. To be ruined. He was destroyed from his former position of reflecting God's glory in the mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of splendor. That's pride. So what did God do? I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. You know, we think we're the center of everything, but there's an angelic conflict going on that's much bigger than us, folks. We think that we're everything. God cast them, I put you before kings that they may see you. God put Satan before men that they might see who he really is. We have in Revelation what happened when he fell. It says in another sign, Revelation 12:3, a sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. When Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him also. Those are now demons. There's different ranks and authorities and all that stuff, structure. Satan's the head of those guys for a while. He got it, but he got it in the context of his judgment coming. 
imminent judgment. So he was cast out. And it says in verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. He polluted his sanctuary. That speaks of his heavenly dwelling place. Verse 18, the middle, therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. I believe it's speaking of God's judgment. It's consumed you. You've been judged. The one who walked amidst the stones of fire is now consumed by God's judgment having been ejected from heaven to earth. Now, we know from Job he can access it. He can come up. He's here, the God of this world. He walks around in Job. Where have you from been walking around on the earth, right? Now, he goes and accesses God, but we know in Revelation chapter 12, in the middle of the tribulation, he will be thrown down for good, and we will rejoice, because the accuser of our brethren, who accuses of day and night, has been thrown down. He says, I've turned you to ashes on the earth, end of verse 18, in the eyes of all who see you. Verse 19, all who know you, this is who really know you, not being deceived by all the falsehood, but all who really know you among the peoples are appalled at you. Is this not true? Everyone who truly knows who he is from Scripture, not from fairy tales and fantasies and and wicked twisting of things, they are appalled. And he says here, you have become terrified, and you will be no more. That deserves an amen. Amen. This word terrified in Hebrew speaks of being a horror, a calamity, a dreadful event. You become a dreadful event. You become a horror. It's not that he's terrified. You become a dreadful event in the eyes of all who see you. Is that not true? God threw Satan to earth. So his wickedness would be revealed, and within that it also exposed man's wickedness, didn't it? So notice this fateful future, end of verse 19, and you will be no more. It's wonderful. Satan's been banished to earth, but he will be no more. That doesn't speak of nothingness. No more means he's not going to be able to execute his will in sinfulness anymore. He's going to be tormented, as we will see, day and night in the lake of fire, a place which Jesus said was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why hell was prepared. It wasn't prepared for human beings, prepared for the devil and his angels. But yet, if you reject Christ, that is your destiny also. Indeed, after the great tribulation, when Christ comes in Revelation 19, then Satan is chained for a thousand years. He's set free for one last rebellion. Then he is thrown into the lake of fire. You see, what God is allowing Satan to do is to cause men to show where they really are. It's going to happen as we see with the Antichrist. We're going to see them being revealed to where they really are. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. This is after Christ comes and defeats his enemies. The beast, the false prophet, are thrown into the lake of fire alive. And he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. He got all his names there so you know who it is, right? And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him that he should not deceive the nations. That's what he does, deceives any longer until the thousand years were completed. That's the millennium, thousand years. And after this, he must be released for a short time. And then look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners on the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. This is the final war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil 
who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's being no more. That's no more being tormented forever and ever. That's his future. You see, when the battle gets tough, we need to remember that Satan is the defeated foe and Christ defeated him on the cross. Satan is a defeated foe. First John 3, 7, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. The devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of Man appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same, that through death, that's the death on the cross, he might render powerless or impotent, is the word, him who had the power of death, that is the devil, that he might deliver those through fear of death who are subject to slavery all their lives. You see, Satan has the power of death because in his wickedness, he can righteously say to God, he deserves death because of his sin. But yet God can say, no, in Christ, he's forgiven. It's been paid. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So his power over death in that sense is defeated. But if you don't turn to Christ, then you will die in your sins. And you will have the same lot as the one we're looking at here. God makes it clear that Satan is going to be crushed. Let's look at Romans chapter 16. This is great. Because Satan is active through men and women in the body of Christ, even inside it. He's active but he's going to be crushed. I'm not saying they're believers in the body of Christ. They're infiltrating. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. And the Apostle Paul an interesting passage because he's like saying, you know, Phoebe, help me give greeting to so-and-so, give greeting here and there. And then he stops and says this piece, and he goes back to his greetings and finishes the letter. Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching you have learned and turn away from them. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be. Our enemy is fallen. He has been judged. He's a defeated foe. Christ defeated him on the cross, and he will be crushed. The eternal crushing of our enemy is sure. So we need not focus on him, but we need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to trust in him. You are delivered from Satan by trust in Christ when you believe in him for salvation for sins. And we are delivered from Satan's attacks on us when we trust in Christ. When we believe what he has said, when we rely on Christ... So then we've seen Lucifer's life story. Created perfect, he sinned, the I wills, he thought he could be like God, and God cast him out of heaven to be seen for who he really is. He is a horror. He will be no more. From jewels to maggots and worms, from power to absolute weakness, from stones of fire to the fires of hell, all because of pride. And Satan's doom is your doom if you don't repent. God's a gracious God. He gave his son Jesus for you. And if you reject that, your doom is the same. Don't reject the Lord Jesus. There are those who think they know him. They're going to be separated out. 
Then he will say on those in the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Trust in Christ and be saved today. Maybe you're religious, but inside your heart, you give yourself the glory for everything you really do. Maybe that's a sign that you don't know Christ. Trust in the Lord, believe in him, and you'll be saved. Well, for those of us who are believers, I've already shared the application. We need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't defeat a powerful foe, but Christ in us is greater. And so we need to abide and trust in Christ, putting in the shield of faith and the sword of the word of God. Because we have an enemy that prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in the faith. The truth that you believe concerning your Savior and what he said about us and the truth. And soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.